Happy Monday, everyone. My name is Tim Mikhailashvili, and I'm the host of the All Out Pharma Digital a group that we had formed about a year ago uh, in the pharmaceutical industry across various different companies and medical affairs. And it was actually through social media that I had a chance to first meet Darshan Kulkarni, our special guest today. Darshan, how are you today? How's your Monday? Monday's been good. Monday's been busy, uh, helping with a bunch of different clients and and staying busy. Can't complain too much. And and then I get to, uh, I, I I had a meeting with. Uh, I was doing my own podcast, as you know, and uh, I had some problems with LinkedIn, and we had to reschedule. And I was worried about our conversation. It looks like we may have fixed the problem. We discovered that we had a problem, but we may have fixed it this time around. Darshan Kulkarni is a, an eclectic man of many talents. He's a doctor of pharmacy. Uh, he's an attorney, Esquire, uh, professor at Drexel. He did his training at uh, Temple as well. Uh, he advises many different companies in pharma, outside of pharma, on various regulatory issues that I think are going to be very interesting and timely for a lot of my colleagues and friends whom I've invited from various different professional associations as well. Uh, he's a life sciences council as well as a board member. As and so, Darshan, I want to let you really introduce yourself appropriately for those in our audience so that they can have a better idea of potentially what what questions to ask as well and what you know help you can provide them. Sure. So um, my name is Darshan Kulkarni. I'm a, a pharmacist by training. I went back to law school, got my JD. And when I say went back, that was 20 years ago. Um, I also have a master's in quality assurance regulatory affairs. So when you think of your PRC team, I am your one-man PRC team because I have a regular, I have a, um, when you think MLR, medical legal regulatory, I have a doctor in pharmacy, a JD, and a master's in quality assurance regulatory affairs. I also clerk for, for a federal court judge in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania for the Honorable Clifford Scott Green. Um, I also uh, have a fellowship in air professional geriatric care, about 20 years of experience in, in pharmacy as a pharmacist, um, and um, also about 15 years of experience as an attorney. I think that's about right. I could be off. No, that's that's right. Actually, more than that. Um, I, I also do. Um, so I, I have my own law firm that does FDA regulatory law and compliance. Um, I serve on a few different editorial and advisory boards, um, including for FactMI, where I uh, am director of compliance for them. Um, I also uh, let's see what else do I do? I I, I was uh, chair of the life sciences section for the American Bar Association. Life Sciences Interest Group for the American Bar Association, um, where I land up writing the chapter on um, drug advertising, on, um, let's see, drug advertising, pharmacy compounding, uh, medical devices, and uh, drug reimbursement for HCCA, or the chapter on clinical research. I'm currently working through a book on, so very, very early stages, but a book on uh, medical affairs and medical science liaisons. Uh, I'm also, I also wrote the chapter on, um, on the Indian pharmaceutical industry several, almost a decade ago. Um, I have my own, have my own podcast, uh, where I do, where I talk to multiple interesting people, including hopefully you at some point, Tim, um, on, on, uh, be, the life sciences that would be and yes. <laughs> that'd be great. Um, the other part, uh, I, let's see, um, I, I was in terms of my career. I was uh, I've been general counsel, chief compliance officer, 
Uh, I was corporate counsel initially for a pharma company that was a generic company. Um, I was then um, have known firm for a while. While having my firm, I, I was uh, VP of regulatory strategy and policy for one of the largest uh, medical writing companies in the world who had a consulting arm. Um, I then went back and clerk, uh, and then was general counsel chief compliance officer for a healthcare startup out of, out of the University of Pennsylvania. And um, I, I really don't want to get into the names, but yeah. Um, then there was um, th my work, I tend to focus primarily on post IND through the NDA um, into commercialization. So uh, clinical research, medical affairs, sales, sales compliance, genericization, uh, buy and sell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I like to think that um, I've actually helped companies develop the product and sold at the end of the life cycle. But yeah, so hopefully it gives your, your viewers an, an idea of what I do. Yep. Uh, and it's, I don't know how you find the time, Darshan, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I'm definitely inspired because uh, I think, I think that's staying consistent with our environment in which we have many more opportunities to learn and teach and connect uh, within our industry and others as well. Uh, I definitely learn uh, a, a great deal every time I attend your Darshan Talks podcast. So for everyone, Darshan Talks is the name of the podcast. I'll put it in the banner later. I hope people enjoy it. And I appreciate you you sort of putting it out there. And, and I hope people join and listen and, and hopefully learn as much from me as they learn from you. Yes. Uh, Darshan, one of the reasons why I called this session the next generation of social media communications policies in pharma is I believe that there are a lot of changes in various regulatory policies and our environment and just the abundance of data, the volume, the velocity of the data and how it travels. I want to ask you a general question based on your observations, you know, sure. in, in throughout your, your work with various pharma companies whether it's in medical or outside of medical, to how up to date uh, are our policies right now, our social media and digital communications policies to be specific? So I think that uh, companies from large to small are actually developing and updating. The, so I, I think that they're, 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 you're seeing different ranges. You're seeing super small companies create social media policies. You're seeing mm -hmm. um, mature companies have social media policies going, how in line are they right now? And then there are um, th then there are people who have policies, but they are um, potentially not as up to date. And, and that may be either on purpose or they may be because um, they, they just haven't gotten around to it. So we'll, I'll give you a couple of different examples. So um, there are com large companies, for example, who um, who have tremendous, really, really good social media policies, but um, they specifically don't reference the idea of um, off-label discussions. And that's mm -hmm. because they're um, either they don't want to, which is possible, um, or they've forgotten to, which is possible, or because they're being conservative. Um, and, and that can result from a few different things. So number one, it can result from the fact that um, there, there has been in the recent past, and when I say recent past, I mean over the last decade, uh, but um, several court cases where the court has um, admonished has, has admonished the FDA for being overly aggressive with its enforcement, uh, and this has pop this has popped up more than a few times. The FDA put out a sixty-something page memo talking about 
how they don't know what to do with off-label. Um, they, um, if you if you compare this to say the 19 in 19, uh, 1998 or so, uh, we had about approximately, and again, I'm talking, don't don't take the dates specifically, but around that time, about 195, 196 um, warning letters from from at that point DD Mac, and now I think last year we had probably about six. So that that drop off had to do with numerous factors. Uh, one of which was the FDA is still trying to get its bearings on on what happened. Um, so the idea of developing social media policy starts with knowing um, what standard you are going to follow. And what standard you're going to follow is going to be largely dependent. Thank you again for posting that. Um, the standard you follow is going to be largely dependent on what you offer and, and what you want to um, what you what you think is a reasonable standard to use. So for example, um, just let, let's say healthcare practitioner engagement in general, right? Um, people will say the policy is um, is that you you uh, you can engage with healthcare practitioners in, in certain formats. Um, and this is not specifically social media, this is actually just healthcare engagement. Um, but just two months ago, OIG came out and put out a, um, a response saying that there are going to be very specific situations okay to engage with healthcare practitioners. And sometimes the, the speaking uh, arrangements may be too aggressive, which is not a, what a lot of people know about. So a lot of co companies have not updated their, social, their, their engagement policies to reflect that. Pharma updated, updated its policy probably around mid-January or so. So it's only about a month and a half old, but something to consider um, as you're updating. Now, you start talking about things like uh, space-limited uh, engagements. So if that's true, are you going to have social media pages that are product-based? Are you going to have social media pages that are um, that are company-based? Or are you going to have social media pages that are claims-based? Each of them results in a totally different uh, group and, and requirement uh, requirements that may or may not be something that companies are considering. So the, the idea being that it's possible companies are... Um, a little bit more conservative this second, uh, and, and appropriately so, depending on the company's own uh, risk appetite. Um, but they, they need to be thinking about what they want, how far they can go, um, who is managing the policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is that kind of responsive? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Now, in terms of medical affairs versus sales, uh, from what uh -huh. I remember, Darshan, from years ago, when I was starting out my career, uh, I... I, I realized that you know the FDA doesn't really discriminate from medical to sales reps in terms of let's say uh, problems or with with policies or violations of policies. To them, it's it's about whether or not there is you know any bre breach or any any uh, unlawful promotion practice or 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 implicit or explicit. Right, is that that was my kind of general understanding that whether I'm a medical liaison or a sales rep, the, I, I'm just as liable as as they are, and just as likely to let's say violate a some kind of uh, regulatory issue. So, what what are any differences if they still exist between the level of risk, let's say, from medical to sales today? So I think there are a few different things. So depending on when you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. I think a, a key component is that um, if you do medical, so, so there, there are a series of court cases from probably about the early 2000s 
um, that talk about this, where they basically say that um, medical affairs is technically engaged in quote unquote scientific discussion. If it's engaged in scientific discussion, it, it is afforded um, what's referred to as pure speech uh, rights. And it's considered to be pure speech. So it's considered to be the same level as say political speech. And the government um, has to um, has to meet the standard called strict scrutiny. It has to really be very, very specific about what they prevent people from saying. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, commercial speech is held to a different standard. It's not held to that same rigor as pure speech. And, and there, there are less expectations around it. Um, the, so medical affairs, if done right, falls into scientific, uh, scientific discussion and therefore have a lot more leeway about what they can say. Uh, on the other hand, uh, sales is very clearly commercial speech. Um, so, so that's one part of that, uh, that discussion. The second part of that discussion is um, if, you, if you call yourself medical affairs, and then you go out there and you have a sales territory and you market, uh, you, you basically have a doctorate behind your name, but you then but you then go out there and market your product. The question is, are you really working as a medical affairs person? And therefore, therefore, you, do you have the safe harbor protections of um, of the First Amendment? Um, and the DOJ had multiple settlements in the early 2000s, which basically said no. Either you are in medical affairs and you are really protected by that First Amendment and you are engaged in scientific discussion, or you're a sales rep. Mm -hmm. And and that distinction has gotten blurred. And I, I see that probably every three to four years, you get, get a wax and wane of um, where people are. So um, in the early 70s or so, you had, uh, I think it was Upjohn who came out and basically created the super sales reps. And then um, it went all yeah. the way, pr probably 2010 or so, we started, uh, we started seeing these companies come out and say, well, why don't we give medical affairs a, a, um, a well, like I said, in the, in the 2000s, you create this pure speech, medical affairs only uh, engages in scientific discussion. 2010 or so, uh, why don't we give them sales territories? And once you got into the sales territories perspective, well, do they really are they really engaged in uh, scientific discussion at that point? Um, and you had multi-billion-dollar settlements right around that time. Um, mm -hmm. And then you had the Coronia case, you had the IMSV Sorrell case, you had the uh, multiple three different citizens' petitions that all came out around that time. And um, when all those came out, the FDA was taken a back foot because they lost a couple of these, uh, several of these. Well. All of those court cases that that we're referring to, uh, IMSV Sorrell was obviously not an FDA case, but overall speaks to the First Amendment. Um, but but the result of that was um, you had the FDA asking and trying to figure out what their role is because the F FDA went to the courts and basically said um, we've regulated based on approval forever. Why um, it it if the court throws out this requirement that we we regulate based on um, the standard of truthful, not misleading, uh, it might upend the entire regulatory schema that has existed. And the court basically said that the regulatory, uh, the, the, the First Amendment, the way it's interpreted has been changing since the 1980s. The FDA just hasn't updated yeah. it. So um, that's caused a lot of changes, a lot of updates. And you're, the, you're seeing the impact of that even now. Um, I believe earlier this year, the FDA said that they're going to create some kind of task force 
to address First Amendment concerns. Um, so my point being, um, there, there have been multiple ways it's come up and, and um, whether you, you see it in the context of um, the distinction between sales and medical affairs, uh, I had a, I had um, I had someone come on to my podcast uh, and talk about the fact that it's an arbitrary distinction from her perspective, because mm-hmm. um, in the end you are talking about product. On the other hand, some might argue that there is a free speech, non-free speech distinction, um, and there are court cases that speak about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are then there's just multiple other ways and and uh, expressions possible to to sort of address you as a company and help you understand what you can and cannot say. So so overall, I would say that um, you're right in that you may be super up to date in that is that distinction still valid? Um, but I think companies are still working off of the, uh, the 2000 or so um, framework where there is a clear distinction between uh, farm uh, between MSLs, medical affairs and uh, and and sales, um, but we might see that get changed over the next two to five years. Mm-hmm. I would have thought we'd have had changed by now, but we aren't there yet. Right. So there are many gaps that are still remain. And you mentioned the two thousands. That's when I actually started my career. You know, as as a medical liaison. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe speaking a little bit more specifically regarding the types of social media communications policies. Maybe you can uh, share some ideas in terms of the distinctions from what can a a pharma employee do safely versus what they can't. Let's say, can they uh, repost their um, their employer's, um, let's say, disease awareness kind of website or product uh, product news or a latest uh, trial that or, or abstract thing, or can they comment to it? Or what are the levels of you know, activities that are are now, you know, allowed and those that are maybe scrutinized more. Can you give sure. us a little bit more detail? On, yeah. Sure. Let's, let's, let's play it out. And again, it's going to be scenario by scenario specific right. and, and case by case specific. It's a fact, fact-based discussion, but let's talk about yeah. in generalities. Um, if, if you had a situation where you've got a, a sales rep, for example, reviewing a, um, a disease awareness ad, for example, right? So let's say someone puts out that you have diabetes, and um, you've got a sales rep who who likes who likes uh, di- uh, I'm sure there's a diabetes day out there, um, and and they go out there and they say, you know what, um, we support my company's diabetes day. Um, great, there's there's no problem with that. Now you go out there and instead of diabetes. You're now talking about um, the the promotion piece, and the promotion piece comes out and talks about um, how your specific insulin helps with diabetes. Mm-hmm, Still, mm-hmm. Um, that that promotional piece has been reviewed by your sales rep, by your PRC team. Mm-hmm. The sales rep at that point can still sort of highlight it, retweet it, uh, like it, whatever they want to do, because it's already been approved by the PRC team. Okay. Now you take that same exact piece, and it had been, it has now instead of coming out via um, a piece approved by the PRC team, it's a clinical trial study that has not gone through FDA approval, got pushed out by say um, Medical Affairs, as this is a new study that's come out. And let's say there was a there was a process that that happened, and 
there are numerous ways that can and cannot happen. But let's say that's what happened. In that specific scenario, you are now as a sales rep promoting an off-label discussion. And that mm -hmm. causes all kinds of problems depending on your own company's policies and procedures. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it comes down to who is initially pushing it out, who mm -hmm. is the audience, and are you as the sales rep acting in, on your, in your role as an individual, in your role as a healthcare practitioner, or in your role as a representative of the company? And each mm -hmm. of those will have different ramifications. Okay. And uh, so clear as mud. Yeah, yeah, no, but you're you're providing some guidance, I think, you know, Darshan, to uh, for for the audience, the the author of the indicate the different the different scenarios, because it's impossible to have one solution for all types of companies, and that brings me to, let's say, another question that I thought about, which was uh, smaller companies versus the larger, well-known, global top, let's say, twenty pharma companies. Uh, are is there a difference in terms of the level of scrutiny from regulatory authorities? Can are, are the smaller companies more have more freedom to <laughs> institute, uh, let's say, uh, more lib liberal types of social you know communication policies? So I think smaller companies are less developed. It doesn't mean that they're freer. So it means that the FDA is still looking, and okay. it's prime for the for the picking. Uh, however, if if you were trying to draw a distinction, uh, yeah. I think that the fact is that um, CDRH has significantly lower resources than OPDP. So OPDP, for example, has only has what are those two? Could you for those who yeah. may not know? Yeah, could you define that? Yeah, because yeah. So if if you're in the drug world, uh -huh. uh, you you fall under CDR, and if um, if you're a biologic, you fall under CBER, uh, and CBER has something called uh, so. If you're in the drug world, you fall under CEDAR, and you have a group called OPDP, Office of uh, Promotion. I forget what o it stands for, Office of Promotion and something product, but mm -hmm. um, OPDP. Um, if, so they, they review your promotional pieces to make sure they're compliant, um, or at least to see if they have concerns. Um, then there is um, CBER, which is biologics, and that's a regulated review. Those, those ad pieces are looked at by Applebee, APLB. And then CDRH uh, has its own group, and, and they look at uh, pieces for, for devices. Um, of, of the three, uh, OPDP is probably the most well-staffed. I think the last time I checked, it was something like 77 to 80 people um, who, were, who were in that process. Mm -hmm. um, CDRH, last time I heard, was three. Now, you think about all the, all the medical devices out there, all of whom are making claims. Uh, some of them are uh, doing that compliantly use, using a 510K. Others mm -hmm. are doing it under a uh, PMA and, and has different ramifications, again, with the regulatory strategy that's that's been used. Um, if you recognize that part, you realize that there are just significantly less resources to do the policing for medical devices than for drugs. Um, but on the other hand, um, drugs also have a lot more rules in place because uh, they just have the resources to give you those rules. On the other hand, that doesn't quite exist in the case of, uh, of devices. So it's a little bit more um, of a um, wild, wild west situation compared to drugs, not because they want it that way, but because of just a different set of resources that are available. Um, so, so if you were asking who gets more scrutinized, I would right. say, I would argue CDRH uh, gets less, excuse me, gets less scrutinized than uh, CEDAR, for example. 
On the other hand, if you compare large and small, I don't think you, you see the same, um, you see a real distinction between the two. You see uh, large and small companies get scrutinized just as easily. In terms mm -hmm. of prosecutions, um, if you're if you're like a very, very early stage startup, uh, unless they want to make an example out of you, um, it, or they want to make a, a larger point, it's not typically where OIG, FDA, OPDP directs its resources. Um, having said that, there are numerous instances where they have, but it's really been more, let me make a point here, as opposed to um, that we, we think we're going to go after you. On the other hand, if you are one of the large pharma, you have deeper pockets. And if you have deeper pockets, DOJ um, and OIG are more willing to spend the resources to track you down and make sure that you you pay for potentially misleading people because you are, um, the standard, as you know, is truthful and not misleading. So right. the cost of for truthful and not misleading comes down to who has the pockets to pay for that. And large pharma has those pockets while super small pharma does not. Yeah, so where, you know, the reason why I'm smiling is because where do you draw that line <laughs> in terms of what is misleading and what isn't? is now probably under question given that you know i've seen some recent statistics that patients themselves are uh, moderating and are leading these discussions regarding decisions that affect their life right the, these medical mm -hmm. decisions they're demanding treatments I've, i saw some research darshan that shows that out of uh, all uh, dermatology related hashtags on instagram for example uh, only 5% of them are authored by board-certified dermatologists. So that's sure. the reality out there. That's the environment. And that's what I think we in medical, in pharma, and also in our regulatory policies have to reflect just what misleading may mean or may not mean based on who it is, who the author is, and what we're how we're allowed to engage with KOLs. Because, you know, in your example, I think the startup companies what makes a startup different from larger companies is that it's it's velocity of decisions, I think, and 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 pro, you know, and probably engagement and networking. So, while other bigger companies may um, may be flushing out their compliance policies and and in order to reach a phys physicians in various ways, those startups may be engaging, you know, deep, you know, on a deeper level or in more modern. Uh, method via modern methods let's say is my i don't know is something that i'm hypothesizing um you know but uh so so the the, the question is like what can you give us a little bit more detail in terms of how how the regulatory agencies are defining misleading today versus years ago is it is that changing at least or it's again the, the rules haven't changed Interpretation mm -hmm. of the rules is in, is in flux. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that sentence. Um, so mm -hmm. if, if you think about it, the, the fact is that if you, uh, the FDA really has three levels, three standards out there to evaluate whether something is is okay, if a statement made is okay. Um, you, you have the uh, the lowest standard, which is CARS, which is competent, reliable scientific evidence. That's mm -hmm. the lowest standard. Okay. Then there's the higher standard that FDA really doesn't use, but it exists. It's called substantial uh, substantial scientific evidence, I believe, um, mm -hmm. and it's very very rarely used. I can't even think of when it was last used. Um, and then there's the actual uh, standard for clinical claims, which is uh, uh, substantial evidence, and and that's the standard. Typically speaking, substantial evidence is uh, two double blinded, placebo controlled, multi multi center, multinational studies, right. um, also known as adequate uh, adequate adequate evidence that is, goes into that same standard, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so 
that's the overall overarching standard that people use. Now, remember that, that there's also Fadama 114, which I believe, again, I'd have, to, I'd have to double check, but Fadama 114, I believe, is the car standard still. But each of these, diff depending on what kind of claim you're making, you have to adhere to a different standard. And that's the expectation from the FDA when it comes to what constitutes truthful and not misleading. So if you come out and you say, I have a, I have a, a case study involving one patient, and we cured cancer, um, mm -hmm. ignoring the fact that cancer is like 50,000 diseases, but yeah. we cured cancer. Um, yeah. And it's based off of one case study. It's unlikely you're going to meet the substantial evidence standard, but uh -huh. you're making a clinical claim. So you're very clearly not meeting that substantial evidence standard, and therefore you are not truthful and not misleading. On yeah. the other hand, um, and, and that's sort of where you're getting a lot of these um, COVID-19 cures. Uh, that were really based on dietary supplements, which were tested on like mice. Uh, you're seeing those claims come through and the FDA is going, you don't meet that standard. Um, on the other hand, um, FTC uses the the, um, the the standard associated with, uh, with uh, CARS, which is competent reliable scientific evidence. And it's a lower standard used in other situations. Mm -hmm. so, um, so that might be something like ease of use claims. Right. Um, and, and that's a different standard you use. So each of those will play a role in um, what constitutes truth and not misleading. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah. Great, great. So yeah, this this uh, this definitely calls for lots of notes from this podcast that I'll be sharing on my blog, Amadea Pharma blog. In a, social media is one popular way to communicate, but then you have internal ways to communicate that leaves a, a trail or document, you know, right documents that many companies are sensitive about. So, uh, however, a lot of that is also changing in terms of our productivity. We have so many different formats of data, either structured yeah. or unstructured, that ultimately impacts our decisions, how we communicate from, from the pharma perspective, from medical with our you know, scientific experts, let's say. Sure. Is, is there, is, do you see a trend among all the companies that you advise in terms of the tools that are used and, and, and there uh, to communicate internally? you know, uh, not just externally in terms of, let's say, I don't, you know, Slack, for example, I know that a lot of tech companies use Slack and I right. find it that it's, a, you have an immediate, immediate feedback and just a, you know, lots of capabilities there, but that's not accepted, you know, use in, 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 in throughout pharma, you know, yes, we use Salesforce for our customer relationship management tool on the sales and the, but uh, can you provide any um, your your thoughts and uh, uh, in terms of the, the different formats of communication and how they're changing or or, or the potential or the need for their change uh, in in throughout pharma? I think it's again always situation dependent, right? So it's it's not like I can speak. I mean, I know I know pharma companies using Slack. I know pharma companies oh, really? using oh, Teams. I didn't know. Oh wow. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I know pharma companies using Teams because they already bought right. into the entire infrastructure associated with it. Um, right. And then you've got people buying into a bunch of different tools like Asana and uh, Trello and um, just other products. Uh, Monday, I believe, is another one. Um, and they use all of these tools as well. Um, mm -hmm. Then you've, uh, you've got companies that are uh, more structured about, about the way they engage. And they might say that we have a custom platform that we want you to use. Uh -huh. They have their own intranets that, that will communicate. But obviously with COVID and stuff, th those initial, everyone comes to the office, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to talk through things, that format's disappearing in the same way. So using things like internal meetings doesn't quite work out the same way, especially when you're large pharma 
and you've got 40,000 people who've got to attend the meeting. Um, yeah, you can do a bulletin board, but you, it doesn't enable you to have continuous um, two-way communications. Right. Um, when, when you're talking, for example, a lot of stuff I do is in PRC, you've got a bunch of different tools out there, everything from a Primo to uh, uh, a Pepper, uh, uh, Pepperflow to Viva, all of them are different tools to communicate between between managers and and team members. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it all comes down to the format, the forum, the goal. Um, you've got to be careful. For example, internal uh, internally speaking, uh, even if you're speaking internally, just the fact that you say something can remember it's still a, rec a recording. Recording. And okay. if it is a recording, um, you someone can come in after the fact and say you said X and the company ignored you. Even yeah. though you are saying it as something that's in flow in process, right? Um, if it can come back to haunt you, so you've got to be careful about what yeah. you say and and how you say it. Um, it. It's important that you consider different iterations, but it's also important that you consider that we're now working and living in a space where every iteration is is controlled, and and that's really what Part Eleven compliance really spoke to in the first place. So mm -hmm. keep that in mind as you continue. You alluded to a company that's uh, pushing the envelope a little, the boundaries somewhat, or or is that's using a lot of the innovative uh, technologies. Can can you share, uh, you know, to the to the level of detail that you you are allowed to legally, of course, uh, any best practice or any any company that let's say just recently changed their social media communication policies and what that change was in general terms and what was let's say the outcome any benefit any advantage or 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 the opposite i mean if that's the case um i, I think that companies are still evolving i think that um the companies that i'm working with are um i'd say probably two three four years ago they basically just said we're, we're not doing social media we're not right. doing social media media because um we, we don't know what to expect. The FDA is not clear about its expectations. I think you're, you're seeing a shift over to, okay, we're going to do social media. The question is now what? So you're seeing the large uh, promotional companies, uh, ad agencies come out and say, yes, we will do social media. Um, so maybe we can start putting claims out there. Remember, there is a guidance out there on space-limited uh, information. So how you okay. comply, it's not whether you can do it, it's how you can do it and what can you say. So, um, it's really hard to do a disease claim on Twitter, for example, not because it's inappropriate, but because you, you can't do fair balance on Twitter unless you use certain strategies. So keep that in mind and, and don't necessarily just trust that your ad agency knows what they're doing. They're trying to push the envelope as well. Mm -hmm. um, so when you are in medical, recognize that that fair balance, if you're in, in pharma, is a, is a requirement. So how are you going to meet that standard becomes something you need to consider. Um, when, when I start looking at these clients, um, the, the multiple clients across the team, the, the best practices, if you will, have been um, really having, um, so, so I've worked with companies who will say, we just wanna put things out there. You either say yes or no, and we'll keep going. That's fine. Um, but I find that that to be a little bit more complicated in terms of you always have roadblocks. On the other hand, if you, uh, for lack of a better term, pre-game and you go, does this concept work? What are what are the issues um, th that that may um, stop uh, this this product from going through? In those specific situations, it's important that um, that the the pre-gaming happen, and that'll enable a much smoother PRC review, um, and and therefore enable a better communications with patients, with caregivers, with 
healthcare providers. So I, I think that's probably um, some of the overall thing, excuse me, things to consider as you're engaging. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was very helpful. You mentioned PRC several times. Has that process that many people consider a, a dreaded process been shortened or streamlined? So again, I, I can speak to, and I'm, I didn't come on here to make promotions for myself, but um, for example, I have a company um, that has what's called the Minos process. And what that is, uh -huh. is it's an outsourced MLR process. So instead of making your PRC team review something 10 times, Right. And um, and that's causing delays and the like. And you're you're looking at six week cycle times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, right. Um, what what also becomes useful is to have someone else review and clean up. You you basically get two sets of eyes on the on the problem. You you get a faster turnaround process, and the result of that is a faster PRC process because uh, you're getting someone buy into the process early on, and then uh, come out and say someone else gives a second check and and says, okay, this is. This is fine. Um, that's one method I, I, I know has been used to be sort of successful. Um, there are some other tools out there, um, and I have no no money in that or anything, but I've been told that um, there are some tools that do digital or AI review. Uh, I, I have a uh, I have a piece of software that that really talks about uh, essentially um, ask the right questions and says, please go through these questions, evaluate these questions, and see if they work for you. Um, and that enables you to review the process, review your ad, review your claims. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, when PRC looks at them, it's a lot faster to go through those claims as opposed to um, uh, so giving something and, and hoping that PRC thinks that it's okay. So it gives you more of a uh, quick and dirty system to evaluate. So there are tools, but overall, the processes stay the same for several decades at this point. Right. So it's still as as painful for some people as yeah. it's always been. So it's important to have those conversations of communications. Mm -hmm. Okay. Reaching patients is something that I'm thinking about more and more because I see a lot of medical uh, medical um, affairs organizations and pharmaceutical companies uh, have a dedicated, build a dedicated patient advocacy department. And uh, where yeah. before we've considered that to be a more of a commercial uh, function, uh, DTC as direct to consumer, you know, that, you know, the review that you're just talking about, but I think now, you know, patients are becoming at the front for, they're at the forefront of decision-making, you know, and telemedicine mm -hmm. visits. So what are some privacy issues, those AI, like, you know, what are some, um, you know, ways that we can maybe be a little bit more active in communicating with patients, any suggestions you have or anything that you've, you've gathered. I think the overall perspective is that remember patients uh, do want to hear hear from you. P patients do want the information. Um, remember that the FDA is now advocating that you communicate and connect with patients. They actually just put out guidance, not that, uh, I want to say in the last two weeks on engaging with patients appropriately, what types okay, of questions great. you can ask and the like. Um, mm -hmm. they, there's an entire system out there. FDA uh, is talking about how appropriate ways to engage. Uh, if you look at uh, the EMA, they actually have uh, delay summaries where they want you to communicate um, clinical study uh, results with patients. So if you're talking about these different things, um, we can absolutely talk about how these different agencies want you to communicate with patients. The, the fact then becomes, okay, you, you've got you've got agencies that are saying you should communicate. How does that, let's take the FDA. FDA says we want you to communicate with patients. However, when you're talking about clinical trials, 
that becomes more complicated because technically speaking, it's not approved by the FDA. So is that in violation of OPDP requirements? So you've got to you've got to evaluate OPDP requirements connected to um, say a clinicaltrials.gov or a, a lay summary uh, guidance out there, um, or it's connected to something like uh, the IC, uh, ICMJ requirements, uh, which mm-hmm. many many journals are coming out and saying we if you're going to submit to us, we want a lay summary associated with it. Well, if you're going to put out a lay summary, um, does that constitute a violation of your OPDP requirements? And again, these all need mm-hmm. to be considered. Um, so, it, it, these are methods. There are ways, and and it's um, it's a good idea for companies to have a patient ad, patient group that connects with them. I, I'm not sure. I, I I'm going to use the word patient advocacy, but I don't mean patient advocacy in that um, you are. Um, trying to push something to patients. I mean, patient advocacy in that I think you need companies, you need individuals who are advocating for the rights of patients to be involved in their own decision-making and, yep. and how that happens from a company is kind of important. So um, I, I think these will all be considerations as we continue. Okay. Uh, just uh, something on clinical trials that you mentioned triggered uh, a question regarding uh, how is the transparency of clinical trials now changing? How are the current and latest regulations impacting on how transparent we we can be or we have to be in, in pharma? So, again, when you're a pharma, you're not dealing with one uh, one country at a time or one block of countries at a time. Uh, at this moment, there are at least seven different types of clinical trial transparency, um, which most people don't even know. But I'll, wow. I'll quickly recite yeah. what they are. Yeah. Um, you've got just uh, clinicaltrial.gov requirements, which is basically you need to declare that there is, if you're if you're the appropriate type of study, that there is a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Then there is a requirement of um, you did a clinical trial. Here are the results associated with the clinical trial. Then uh, you've got the requirement that you did the clinical trial. Here are the results, but in lay summary format so that patients can understand them. So a plain right. language summaries. Mm-hmm. Then you have here are the clinical trials. We did the study. Um, here is the actual raw data that came out. So mm-hmm. uh, the data uh, transparency. Then there's the here's the clinical trial. We did the research. Um, we are going to promise to publish any research, whether it's good or bad. So um, so that's another another goal. Then there's the uh, we did the clinical trial. The results are OK, are, are what they are. We filed with the FDA. Here are the or, or EMA. Here are the clinical study reports and uh, redacted appropriately for privacy and for um, uh, for company confidentiality. So that's six. And then there's this new upcoming one which is um, we're doing the clinical trials, we're publishing in, in the appropriate medical journals, but we'd like to consider maybe creating summaries of them for healthcare providers so that they don't have to read a full dense article. Let me create something that's understandable to healthcare practitioners. Just because they, are, they can understand something doesn't mean that they want to read a 20 page article that's super dense. So what's, mm-hmm. what is a more readable, understandable format? So those are the seven different types of clinical trial uh, uh, transparency that that exists, um, mm-hmm. and those are all evolving as well. Uh, great. Well, Darshan, thank you so much. I know that there's uh, there's going to be a blog article coming up on this, and there's going to be more conversation that you and I are going to have with hopefully with Medical Affairs Professional Society. I, I know that there were a number of different academic institutions uh, throughout the last two years in various uh, therapeutic areas. 
that uh, actually discontinued fellowship training programs just because because of you know how, how they adapted or or actually didn't adapt. There, there's been such a great variability on how we've adopted to this you know omni-channel ways of communication uh, in healthcare, uh, where I've seen a, a lot of others actually be innovative. You know, and, and innovation lies somewhere at the fringes, you know, of these regulations that I think need to be up to date. So I really appreciate your uh, your support of the innovation in healthcare and you keeping all of us informed, uh, you know, and better to make better medical decisions ultimately and to improve quality of healthcare, which I think is the, the primary objective for, for us, all of us in the pharmaceutical industry. And I just want to leave the last word to you in terms of uh, if if you were to share one one lesson or something that you know my colleagues, uh, whether in farm, whether in medical or in sales, need to know about now, um, or what you want them to change, uh, you know the floor is yours, Darshan. I just want uh, you to uh, share any message that you have. You know, sure. I I, I think the 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 real message that I would say is that if if people come to me and go. All these regulations, there's so many regulations, they're constantly evolving. How do you keep track of them? How do you sort of comply with all of them? It's next to impossible. I can totally understand that perspective. Here, here's here's the way I look at things. I think, and I think you, you said this best, which is um, in the end, we're doing all of this for patients. Look right. out for the best interests of the patients. If you look out for that best interest of the patients, and I mean that in every way, Mm-hmm. chances are that the laws, the regulations will all line up so that um, you will be looking out for the best interest of the patients. So start with a goal of addressing your patients' needs. The laws and the regulations and the like will all line up for that. Great. Thank you so much, Darshan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It was an honor and a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.